Hello and welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Chris Beers. And I'm Stephanie Cox. We have insights and perspectives on the stories shaping our world. Breaking news, in-depth analysis, and inspiration to power your day. We begin our show today with special coverage of President Joe Biden's trip to Israel, where he gives a speech on the Israel-Hamas war. Israeli troops are poised for a potential attack by land on the Gaza Strip after Hamas's October 7th terror attack on Israel. We've seen the images and videos of Israeli hostages being taken by Hamas, as well as blood-smeared kitchens and living rooms where Israeli citizens were brutally slaughtered by the terrorist group. According to Israeli authorities, at least 1,400 Israelis have died and another 3,400 have been injured since the terror attack, what's been called Israel's 9-11. According to the Gaza Health Ministry, Israeli attacks on Hamas targets have killed at least 2,300 Palestinians and injured at least 9,700 more. Now President Biden gives a speech at this critical moment. Let's tune in. Retired soldiers running into danger once again, civilian medics flying across rescue, flying rescue missions, and off-duty medics at the music festival caring for the wounded before coming victim, before becoming a victim himself. Volunteers retrieving bodies of the dead so families could bury their loved ones in accordance with Jewish tradition. Reservists leaving behind their families, their honeymoons, their studies abroad without hesitation, and so much more. The State of Israel was born to be a safe place for the Jewish people of the world. That's why I was born. I've long said, if Israel didn't exist, we'd have to invent it. And while it may not feel that way today, Israel must again be a safe place for the Jewish people. And I promise you, we're going to do everything in our power to make sure that it will be. 75 years ago, just 11 minutes after its founding, President Harry S. Truman and the United States of America became the first nation to recognize Israel. We've stood by your side ever since. We're going to stand by your side now. My administration was in close touch with your leadership from the first moments of this attack. We're going to make sure we have what you have what you need to protect your people, to defend your nation. For decades, we've ensured Israel's qualitative military edge. And later this week, I'm going to ask the United States Congress for an unprecedented support package for Israel's defense. We're going to keep Iron Dome fully supplied so it can continue standing sentinel over Israeli skies, saving Israeli lives. We've moved U.S. military assets to the region, including positioning the USS Ford Carrier Strike Group in the Eastern Mediterranean with the USS Eisenhower on the way to deter, to defer further aggression against Israel and to prevent this conflict from spreading. The United States unequivocally stands for the protection of civilian life during conflict. And I grieve, I truly grieve for the families who were killed or wounded by this tragedy. The people of Gaza need food, water, medicine, shelter. Today, I asked the Israeli cabinet who I met with for some time this morning to agree to the delivery of life-saving humanitarian assistance to civilians in Gaza, based on the understanding that there will be inspections and that the aid should go to civilians, not to Hamas. Israel agreed the humanitarian assistance can begin to move from Egypt to Gaza. 
let me be clear. <clears throat> if Hamas diverts or steals the assistance, they will have demonstrated once again that they have no concern for the welfare of the Palestinian people. And it will end. <clears throat> As a practical matter, it will, it will stop the international community from being able to provide this aid. <clears throat> We're working in close cooperation with the government of Egypt, the United Nations, and its agencies like the World Food Program and other partners in the region to get trucks moving across the border as soon as possible. Separately, I ask Israel that the global community demand that the International Red Cross be able to visit hostages. I just demanded that the United States fully — a just demand that the United States fully supports. Today, I'm also announcing $100 million in new U.S. funding for humanitarian assistance in both Gaza and the West Bank. This money will support more than 1 million displaced and conflict-affected Palestinians, including emergency needs in Gaza. You are a Jewish state. You are a Jewish state, but you're also a democracy. And like the United States, you don't live by the rules of terrorists. You live by the rule of law. And when conflicts flare, you live by the law of wars. What sets us apart from the terrorists is we believe in the fundamental dignity of every human life. Israeli, Palestinian, Arab, Jew, Muslim, Christian, everyone. You can't give up what makes you who you are. If you give that up, then the terrorists win, and we can never let them win. You know, Israel's a miracle, a triumph of faith and resolve and resilience over impossible pain and loss. Think about October 7th, the Jewish holiday, where you read about the death of Moses, <clears throat> a tragic story of a profound loss to an entire nation a death that could have left helpless hopelessness in the hearts of the entire of entire nation but though moses died his memory his message his lessons have lived on for generations of the jewish people as well as many others <clears throat> just as the memory of your loved ones will live on as well after reading the story of moses death those who observed the holiday began reading the torah from the very beginning the story of creation reminds us of two things. First, that when we get knocked down, we get back up again, and we begin anew. And second, when we're faced with tragedy and loss, we must go back to the beginning and remember who we are. We are all human beings, creating the image of God with dignity, humanity, and purpose. In the darkness, to be the light unto the world is what we're about. You inspire hope and light for so many around the world. That's what the terrorists seek to destroy. That's what they seek to destroy. But because they live in darkness, but not you, not Israel. Nations of conscience, like the United States and Israel, are not measured solely by the example or power. <clears throat> We're measured by the power of our example. <clears throat> That's why, as hard as it is, we must keep pursuing peace must keep pursuing a path so that Israel and the Palestinian people can both live safely, in security, in dignity, and in peace. For me, that means a two-state solution. We must keep working for Israel's greater integration with its neighbors. These attacks have only strengthened my commitment and determination and my will to get that done. I'm here to tell you the terrorists will not win. Freedom will win.
So let me end where I began. <clears throat> Israel, you're not alone. The United States stands with you. I've told the story before, and I'll tell it again, of my first meeting with an Israeli prime minister 50 years ago as a young senator. I was sitting across from Golda Meir at her desk in her office, and she had a guy named — a guy who later became prime minister — sitting next to me just before the 1973 Yom Kippur War. And she flipped the maps up and down, telling me how bad things were and how terrible they were. All of a sudden, she looked at me, and she said, would you like a photograph? I looked at her. She got up from her desk and walked out into that hallway. I think it's marble flooring. Walked out in the hallway. We walked down. There were a bunch of photographers standing in front of us. We were standing shoulder to shoulder. Without her looking at me, she said to me, knowing I'd hear her, why do you look so worried, Senator Biden? And I said, worried? Like, of course I'm worried. And she looked at me, and she didn't look. She said, we don't worry. Senator, we Israelis have a secret weapon. We have nowhere else to go. Well, today, I say to all of Israel, the United States isn't going anywhere either. We're going to stand with you. We'll walk beside you in those dark days. And we'll walk beside you in the good days to come. And they will come. As you say in Hebrew, which I'm not going to attempt to do because I'm such a terrible linguist, I'll say it in English, the people of Israel live. The people of Israel live. <laughs> Israel will be safe, secure, Jewish, and democratic state today, tomorrow, and forever. May God protect all those who work for peace. God save those who are still in harm's way. Thank you very much. Mr. President, what is your red line that would prompt U.S. military involvement in this war? Right. We just heard President Joe Biden giving a speech in Israel where he's uh, giving his support to the Israeli people. You know, he began by uh, talking about the terror attack by Hamas on October 7th that was just so devastating to the Israeli people. He mentioned the music festival at which 250 Israeli citizens just out enjoying music and friends and a good time were brutally murdered by the Hamas terrorist group with um, numerous people being taken hostage from that event. We, we know that there is potentially um, 199 hostages taken in total. Um, he recapped these um, horrifying moments in Israel's history and then he went on to talk about uh, yeah, just the Jewish people and his support for them saying, Israel must be, again, be a safe place for the Jewish people. That's right. Um, he also expressed the U.S.'s um, what he called unequivocal support for Israel, calling Israel a miracle and saying that if Israel didn't exist, then we'd have to create it. Um, so really painting the picture of how important Israel is in the world and to the Israeli people and to the Jewish people. And, um, and he, he really pointed out many ways that he would be supporting Israel, the way that the U.S. is already supporting Israel in this war, but also uh, saying that he would go back to Congress and ask for a large sum of money. It sounded like 100 million or perhaps 100 billion 
dollars um, for a support package for Israel at this time. That's right, and you talked about support for the Iron Dome, which is the Israeli rocket system used to um, shoot down rockets from Hamas um, that are launched from Gaza into Israel. He talked about the USS uh, Ford Carrier Group, which was sent to the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, it's there now, as well as the uh, USS Eisenhower, which was um, deployed in the 90s now on its way to um, also to the Eastern Mediterranean, really a huge show of force in the area. Um, he talked about working with Egypt as well as the UN and other nations in the, in the region to uh, ensure peace, uh, ensure stability for the Israeli people there. And just a correction, uh, what Biden had said was he would ask for either 100 million or 100 billion dollars for humanitarian assistance within Gaza. Um, so just to, to correct the record there. Um, and so uh, next up, uh, we're going to look at Israeli-U.S. relations, which uh, Biden, uh, Biden's nominee for U.S. ambassador to Israel is today at a confirmation hearing. That's right. There are divergent views among Democrats and Republicans on the nominee. His name is Jacob Liu. Um, he's held at a, high, at a high level position with uh, the Obama administration. He's currently a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and co-president of the board of national, the National Library of Israel USA. Lou previously criticized Netanyahu over his stance on the Obama administration's efforts to make a nuclear deal with Iran. And on Saturday, Senator Ted Cruz expressed concerns about Biden's nominee's intentions when it comes to Israel. Let's see some of their questions to Lou after the break. We begin our show, our, our second part of the show today with special coverage of the Senate nomination hearing for the U.S. Ambassador to Israel, Jacob J. Liu. Liu was nominated by President Joe Biden on September 5th after his predecessor, Thomas Nides, resigned. The Senate Foreign Relations Committee will scrutinize Liu, a Democrat who's already receiving criticism from conservatives like Senator Tom Cotton. The hearing comes as Israeli troops are poised for a potential attack by land on the Gaza Strip after Hamas's October 7th terror attack on Israel. We've seen the images and the videos of Israeli hostages being taken by Hamas, as well as blood-smeared kitchens and living rooms where Israeli citizens were brutally slaughtered by the terrorist group. Again, as before, according to Israeli authorities, at least 1,400 Israelis have died and another 3,400 have been injured since the deadly terror attack, what's been called Israel's 9-11. And again, according to the Gaza Health Ministry, Israeli attacks on Hamas targets have killed at least 2,300 Palestinians and injured at least 9,700 more. Whatever happens next could change the dynamics of the Middle East. This is the moment Ambassador to Israel nominee Jacob Lew could find himself facing. Let's tune in to the hearing great importance for the United States, for Israel, and the region. 
The attacks by Hamas just over 10 days ago in Israel marked the deadliest day for Jews since the Holocaust. Abducting elderly in wheelchairs, burning people alive, killing babies in front of parents. It was not only horrific it was and barbaric, but methodically planned and carried out. Hamas has started a war. Given the dangerous state of emergency that Israel faces, the United States needs a confirmed U.S. ambassador in Jerusalem. We need someone there to reinforce the message that the United States stands shoulder to shoulder with the state of Israel as it responds to the unprecedented terrorist attack. We need someone to lead the remarkable, selfless U.S. personnel who have been working nonstop at Mission Israel. We need an ambassador who can work with our Israeli partners and help provide services to over 600,000 American citizens here. So Secretary Liu, it was with great urgency that we hold this nomination hearing today. I am committed to getting you in place in Israel as soon as possible. I want to thank Senator Risch for working with me so we could expedite this hearing today. I thank him for that. I think we both agree that speed is of the essence in having a confirmed ambassador to Israel. So I'm going to ask the cooperation of our colleagues. I'm going to ask that questions for the record be submitted by close of business today, and we will make every effort to make sure that we get those responses to you by this weekend. We have scheduled a business meeting for next week for the vote on this nomination. I ask the committee's cooperation because of the urgency of voting on a confirmed ambassador for the state of Israel. Since October 7th, Hamas has killed more than 1,000 innocent people and injured thousands more. They have viciously killed hostages and are still holding others, including American citizens. I cannot overstate the urgency for the United States to have a confirmed ambassador on the ground to help deliver U.S. support for Israel, to deal with the hostage situation, to deal with the humanitarian needs that we know exist. We need an ambassador who, at this critical and delicate time, can speak with authority and engage diplomatically in the region at the highest level. Secretary Liu's experience, gravitas, and political acumen makes him eminently qualified to serve as the U.S. Ambassador to Israel. I have seen firsthand Jack Liu's commitment to public service, his integrity, his dedication to American values, his understanding of the United States' national security needs, and his deep understanding and respect for the legislative branch of government. I also know his effectiveness in crafting solutions to very difficult problems. I want to thank Secretary Liu for his service to our country and your willingness to continue that service in this critically important position as ambassador to Israel. And I want to thank your family, because we know this is a family sacrifice Thank you once again for understanding the need for Jack's service to our nation. The last time Secretary Liu was before the Senate as a nominee, he was confirmed by an overwhelming majority of 71 to 26. Now is not the time to play political games. We need to make sure that the other nations and terrorist groups do not expect- Now is not the time to play political games. How many bombs need to be dropped on Lisa? The committee will be in order. How many
As I said, now is not the time to play political games. We need to make sure that other nations and terrorist groups do not exploit the crisis and open new fronts in the conflict. We need to be clear with everyone, from Hezbollah in Lebanon to the regime in Iran, to Assad in Syria and even Putin in Russia. Don't even think about joining or expanding the war. To that end, we also need to confirm ambassadors to other critical posts in the region. Doing so would allow Ambassador Liu to work with Senate-confirmed counterparts in Amman, Beirut, and Cairo to make sure Americans throughout the region are safe and our interests are represented to the fullest extent. Secretary Liu, there is clearly no shortages of challenges facing you in this post. I look forward to hearing how you plan to address them and what Congress can do to support that. We need your eyes and ears to better understand what is going on in Jerusalem and Ramallah. We need you to keep pushing forward on normalization agreements between Israel and Saudi Arabia. We need you to make it clear to our allies and enemies that when our friends are in trouble, the United States has their back. But most importantly of all, we need you confirmed. Without objection, I'll enter into the record the letters of support for Secretary Liu, including from the American Jewish Committee and the Anti-Defamation League, without objection. And this time, let me turn to our very distinguished ranking member, Senator Risch. Well, uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and uh, thank you for consulting with me as we have over the past week uh, to get uh, to where we are today. Uh, we're here today to support Israel by filling a vacancy in the uh, uh, position for Ambassador to Israel. Uh, we have uh, an acting uh, uh, charge uh, there in uh, Stephanie Hallett. She's doing a great job. When I visited with the Prime Minister early this year, she was very helpful to me, meeting with that, that meeting and the other officials uh, I met with. So we do have uh, uh, things being done there on the ground. I agree with you. We need this thing filled. The problem I have is, is it needs to be filled with the right person. The only thing worse than having it empty would be having the wrong person there. And I have some issues uh, in that regard, which uh, we're going to talk about and hopefully uh, uh, clear the air today one way or another. Uh, Eighteen years ago, Israel took the brave step of dismantling uh, is, uh, Israeli settlements in Gaza, handing it to... Eighteen years ago, Israel took the brave step of dismantling Israeli settlements in Gaza, handing the territory over to the Palestinian Authority. This good-faith effort has been a disaster for the people of Gaza and for Israel as well. Now Israel faces an unprecedented crisis on the scale of, September, uh, of the September 11th attacks against the United States. Masked gunmen killed entire families in their homes, massacred babies, beheaded some, uh, and the elderly, and dragged hostages across the border to Gaza. These attacks were brutal and horrific. We mourn the loss of over 1,400 Israelis and 31 Americans and people from numerous other countries. As Israel rightly responds to safeguard its citizens, it is absolutely imperative that Israel has the freedom to act until they get the job done. This happened to us uh, in uh, anti-Europe in World War II. Uh, the Nazis uh, had uh, taken over Germany and uh, were marching across Europe. We made the decision, our allies made the decision, uh, that uh, the organization, the Nazis, 
could not exist any further. And uh, we, we didn't just go to battle to defeat Germany on the battlefield. We went to uh, war to defeat and dismantle and eliminate uh, the Nazis. We did that. It was difficult. We eliminated the Nazis as a military, as a, uh, a political force, as a cultural force, and everything else. The Israelis are attempting to do the same thing now with Hamas, who richly deserve it. Almost immediately after the... We're tuning into what's turning out to be a highly contentious hearing on the nomination uh, for the Israel, uh, U.S. Ambassador to Israel, Jacob J. Liu. He is um, going to be stepping in if he's nominated, if he's selected as the U.S. Ambassador to um, just a absolutely um, hot, uh, to say the least, situation between Israel and Gaza. You know, to deliver humanitarian aid to the people there, to conduct the highest level of foreign relations, and um, to try to uh, make sense of what's happening and guide the region forward to a peaceful solution at a moment what looks almost what it almost looks impossible for for peace here. Well, it, it is certainly an intense moment, and everybody's hoping that uh, this can move towards peace. We did hear some voices. Uh, crying out for ceasefire and, and lamenting the lives that were, have been lost so far. Uh, we've also heard from the senators there at the hearing, um, they want this moment, you know, this role will also be committed to ensuring that uh, other terrorist organizations do not join the conflict, and that will be essential in terms of um, containing the conflict and not letting it escalate further. Uh, we also heard from Senate Foreign Relations Ranking Member Jim Risch right there speaking about some of, uh, you know, flagging that he has some concerns and that he's hoping that it will clear the air, the, you know, the upcoming questioning will clear the air one way or the other, he, he said. So Democrats definitely want this to be passed through expeditiously. We have more reservation from Republicans. Um, Tim R Jim Risch himself saying previously that that uh, the committee will do their best to move this through as quickly as possible, but they have to do their due diligence. That's right. And one senator actually compared Hamas to Nazis, saying, "You know, we were able the the world was able to go into Germany, um, defeat the Nazis, and eliminate them utterly." And he's saying, "You know, we can do the same thing." with Hamas. It's a pretty huge comparison, and a lot of people don't really take that sort of rhetoric lightly. But I've actually heard uh, some, some, of, some, of the, some of our Jewish guests on our show, uh, people who work for different um, Jewish-related think tanks, law groups, talk actually comparing Hamas to the Nazis. Um, it, yeah. You know, let's maybe hone in a little bit about the nominee, Jacob Liu. He was actually the treasurer under, uh, excuse me, the U.S. Secretary of the Treasury under Obama, and he has really quite the resume. Um, you know, he succeeds Ambassador Tom Nides, who uh, yeah, left the post in, in July. He actually resigned. Um, he was, uh, Lou served as the White House Chief of Staff and Director of the Office of Management and Budget during the Obama administration as well. He was also a CEO, COO for uh, Citi, Citibank or Citigroup. Um, for some of their businesses. 
in um, over the years. And I think we'll have more on uh, the potential U.S. Ambassador to Italy, Jacob J. Liu's nomination hearing after the break for all of you. Thank you for staying with us. And we're looking at um, more from the hearing on Ambassador Liu, like I was just mentioning. And potential ambassador to Israel. Potential ambassador to Israel, that's right. The Senate is moving quickly to confirm Jacob Liu as ambassador to Israel, holding a hearing today before they confirm him or before they decide whether to confirm him. We heard earlier from at the beginning of that hearing. Let's jump back in to see what senators want to know. The, the committee will come to order. Let me make it clear. We will not tolerate interruptions in our hearing. You see what's going to be happening. We ask that those that have strong views, there's a place to express it, but it's not to disrupt this hearing. I will not tolerate that. Senator Risch. Almost immediately after the attacks on Israel, we saw calls for a ceasefire and mediation. These calls are misguided, dangerous, and fail to recognize Israel's legitimate right to protect its people and, re and restore deterrence. What happened in Gaza is directly linked to Iran. That is so important. What happened in Gaza? is directly linked to Iran. The Biden administration cannot wish away the Iranian threat or appease the Iranian regime with promises of unfrozen funds and sanctions relief. The attacks on Isra in Israel and reoccurring attacks against our partners, troops, and diplomats are proof of a failed Iran policy. Iran is the supporter of Hamas, uh, which is impotent without Iran. Unfortunately, the fact of the matter is that Iran has more resources to support terrorism today than it did in 2019. U.S. sanctions enforcement under this administration have been utterly lacking. Iran has earned a shocking $80 billion in oil revenue since the Biden administration took office. Iran's oil economy, once hobbled at 250,000 barrels a day, is now selling almost 2 million barrels of oil every day, mostly to China. We know where that money is going. Iran's ghost fleet used to evade U.S. sanctions has grown from 70 uh, vessels to over 300 during the Biden administration. The unfreezing of funds, uh, first in Iraq, and now the whopping $6 billion from South Korea are completely unacceptable, and it makes Americans and our partners less safe. It, sh it should come as no surprise that these attacks occurred immediately after the Biden administration unfroze the $6 billion and also gave $75 million direct directly to UNRWA uh, over my strenuous objections, by the way. On Palestinian policy, the Biden administration argued that restoring funding that I objected to would give the Palestinian Authority the leverage to promote moderate Palestinian voices and reform organizations like UNRWA. Two years later, we've seen no reform. Violence is at record levels. Pay for slay is active, and many Palestinians identify with terror groups to meet their aspirations. Like Iran policy, it's time for a wholesale reevaluation of Palestinian policy. So today we're here to help Israel. We're here to uh, look at the vacancy that exists, the nominee that's uh, uh, been put before us. We're here to help Israel to not hurt it. 
Secretary Liu, I have reservations on your appointment as America's ambassador to Israel. Not only will you need to support Israel as it responds to these attacks, but also as it, cont as it contends with the enduring and indeed existential Iranian threat, which I think is an underlying and foundational issue here. I have reservations about your ability to do that. You played a key role in supporting the Obama administration's nuclear negotiations, and I've had long-standing concerns over a lack of transparency before, before Congress on the transfers of cash to the regime. You have publicly insisted that transfer transfers of cash do not uh, free up Iranian resources for t terror activities. I fundamentally agree with that assessment. Really importantly, it's alleged that you lied or at least misled us, this very committee. On that, I have three items I want to insert in the record, and I will, uh, Mr. Chairman. Uh, two of them are opinion pieces from the Washington Post, and the third one is uh, a report by the uh, Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations, uh, which uh, has been authored, and I'd like to enter those. Without objection, it'll be included in the record. So I'm going to have some questions for you about uh, the uh, your activities in uh, what I think was a backhanded way of supporting Iran. And uh, with that, I'm going to uh, yield back. I'm here to support Israel today, help every way I can. But I said it's important we get the right person in this position. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Risch. We'll now hear from uh, Secretary Liu. Your full statement will be made part of the record, and you may proceed as you wish. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Chairman Cardin, uh, Ranking Member Risch, members of the committee, I'm honored uh, to appear as the President's nominee to serve as U.S. Ambassador to the State of Israel and grateful to President Biden and Secretary Blinken for the trust and confidence that, that they've shown in me at this critical moment. If confirmed, I look forward to working with, closely with you and other members of Congress to advance U.S. and Israeli interests. Joining me today are my wife, Ruth, and our children. They supported this mission when the immediate focus was to expand the Abraham Accords by further integrating Israel into the Middle East region. And they remain supportive as Israel in the midst of a war with the dream of working towards more peaceful days. As always, knowing that they are behind me is at the core of my ability to serve. I cannot remember a time when Israel's struggle for security was not at the forefront of my mind. I came of age in a family that combined belief in religious Zionism and labor Zionism. When I was 12, the age of my oldest grandchild now, we followed daily reports of the Six-Day War as closely as you could with four daily newspapers and broadcast news. In 1973, the year I came to Washington as a young man, I learned of the Yom Kippur War at synagogue on our most solemn day of prayer, and I worried deeply about the survival of the State of Israel. The horrific and murderous terrorist attacks just days ago shattered another holy day, and learning again of an attack on Israel at a prayer service was an experience that I had hoped never to repeat. At this moment, there is no greater mission than to be asked to strengthen the ties between the United States and Israel, to work toward peace in a region that has known so much war and destruction. We just heard from Senator Risch and the potential nominee for the uh, U.S. ambassador to Israel position, uh, 
Jacob Liu in the hearing to potentially uh, nominate him for, uh, to, to send him to the Senate to, for a vote. Um, in this intense time with the conflict between Israel and Gaza and Hamas, really, uh, we've already heard uh, multiple outbreaks in the, during the hearing uh, that seemed like activists screaming extremely emotional things that are hard to hear, talking about, you know, our families are dying, we want a ceasefire now, um, there's genocide in Gaza, really um, emotional outbursts. Uh, Rish is talking about, um, you know, what happened in Gaza is directly linked to Iran, and saying that the, the nominee, Jacob Liu, has uh, worked with Obama to, in the Iran nuclear deal during his administration, which has been um, highly criticized as enabling Iran in the Middle East. That's right. And, and Rish also responding in part, I suppose, to those calls said, you know, calls for a ceasefire were misguided because, uh, in part, the threats that exist are so much, so obviously from terrorist organizations from Iran that really just want to annihilate Israel. So um, responding there, coming back to Israel, saying that the attacks on Israel were actually a proof of a failed U.S. policy on Iran. So, you know, he pointed out many of the ways that he sees uh, the, the previous administration, the um, Biden, the, excuse me, Obama administration's approach to Iran, um, not uh, setting this up potentially in a way. So saying that, you know, Iran has more resources now than in 2019, um, pointing to Biden having a lack of sanctions on Iran and just saying, you know, freeze, unfreezing that, that $6 billion going to Iran, all of this really paved the way for this conflict. So. Um, That's right. And we heard from uh, Lou himself, who talked about being honored to be considered the nominee for uh, the U.S. ambassador to Israel. Um, he talked about advancing U.S. and Israeli interests, um, securing peace in the region, and he talked about how he, you know, mourned the, the attacks, the previous attacks, um, going back decades now, um, by Hamas on Israel. Um, yeah, showing uh, sincere, what seemed like sincere sympathy for, for the conflict there. Um, and if we can just touch on, again, a little bit about Lou and his background. Mm -hmm. He was this the Secretary of Treasury under the Obama administration. Uh, he's, he's a Democrat, uh, as, he's from part of the Democratic Party. Um, he served as the 25th White House Chief of Staff from 2012 to 2013, um, uh, a strong part of the Biden administration. And uh, he's currently a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. He's co-president of the board of the National Library of Israel USA, and he's a chairman of the board of the National Committee on the United States-China Relations. So we'll be digging further into these and what that could mean for U.S.-Israel, U.S.-Iran relations and security in the region. But let's head back to the hearing and see what's happening there.
Welcome back. We are streaming the uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee hearing on the nomination for the U.S. Ambassador, Ambassador for Israel. Uh, the nominee is Jacob J. Liu. He was the U.S. Uh, Secretary of the Treasury under the Biden administration, also serving as the White House Chief of Staff then. Already we've seen uh, a, a highly contentious hearing with activists actually breaking out, shouting, um, you know, there's genocide in Palestine, these kinds of cries. Um, even though we do know that Hamas is actually positioning their rockets in and around hospitals, schools, in order to, what seems like in order to ensure increased civilian casualties, and numerous of the guests we've had on our show recently have spoken about this. So let's dive back in to the hearing to hear what senators have to say and, and what they have to ask uh, U.S. Ambassador U.S. Ambassador to Israel nominee Jacob J. Liu. The savage attack demands the condemnation of the world, and President Biden has made clear that the United States stands with Israel in its efforts to defend itself. I will do my utmost to end the horrific attacks by Hamas and ensure that Israel has what it needs to defend itself. And I will spare no effort in working to help American citizens now captive to return home safely. And I will work to root out payments to terrorists and their families as rewards for their heinous crimes. If confirmed, I will work to prevent other state or non-state actors from expanding this conflict to new fronts. And I will coordinate with the international community to address the humanitarian crisis facing innocent civilians in Gaza who are being used as human shields by Hamas. And Mr. Chairman, members of the committee, I want to be clear. Iran is a threat to regional stability and to Israel's existence. If confirmed, I will uphold President Biden's commitment to deny Iran a nuclear weapon. And warning to the region that anyone who's thinking of taking advantage of the current crisis, don't. I will work to strengthen Israel's security. Israel's our closest partner in the region, and its security is paramount. The President has been clear, the U.S. commitment to Israel is ironclad, demonstrated in part by our $38 billion Memorandum of Understanding. In the midst of war, our long-term strategic objectives must also remain clear. If confirmed, I will work to advance comprehensive and lasting peace through a negotiated two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and more broadly, to build upon the Abraham Accords and promote more integration, normalization, and cooperation across the region with Israel as a fully recognized partner. I look forward to deepening economic and commercial relationships, enhancing cooperation and economic security in sectors such as cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, transportation, smart agricultural technologies, and clean energy. And as Israel's economy grows and diversifies, the U.S. and Israel must enhance our close cooperation on foreign investment risk management. If confirmed, I will continue to oppose all efforts to isolate and delegitimize Israel internationally and support the global fight against anti-Semitism. I will advance the tireless work of this administration to firmly reject the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. 
while respecting the rights of all Americans to free speech. I will work to reinforce collective efforts to combat anti-Semitism, building on President Biden's national strategy to counter anti-Semitism, including the abhorrent incidents in the wake of the Hamas attacks on October 7th. More broadly, if confirmed, I will work to further strengthen our 75-year-old partnership with Israel and deepen the bonds between our people. Finally, as someone who has dedicated much of my life to public service, I want to thank the talented and committed foreign service officers, civil servants, and foreign nationals who are doing an extraordinary job at a time of violence and war, representing the United States in Washington and abroad. Just watching this morning our able DCM standing beside the President, knowing that her family and the families of all of our people who are over there have been shaken by the last 10 days. I have personal, as, as a citizen, I have personal appreciation for their dedication, courage, and I think that their service deserves the admiration and respect of all of us and all of the American people. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Risch, thank you for the opportunity to testify here today, and I look forward to your questions. Uh, thank you, Secretary Lou. Before we start the five-minute rounds, I have uh, the obligatory questions that we asked all nominees that should be answered by either a yes or no. Do you agree to appear before this committee and make officials from your office available to the committee and designated staff when invited? Yes. Do you commit to keep this committee fully and currently informed about the activities under your purview? Yes. Do you commit to engaging in meaningful consultation while policies are being developed, not just providing notification after the fact? Yes. Do you commit to promptly responding to requests for briefings and information requested by the committee and its designated staff? Yes. All right, we just heard from Jacob J. Liu. He's the he's President Biden's nominee for the U.S. Ambassador to Israel. And he's being um, questioned at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee hearing on, on, on him right now. Um, uh, those questions are, are really just beginning, actually, and we heard some initial questions that were just yes or no answers. But upcoming, we're actually expecting to hear more, especially from Republicans who are really wanting to pick this apart before, it, before they let it through. Um, I, I do have a quote from Senator Ted Cruz from earlier on Saturday saying that um, his concerns were that Quote, nominees keep lying to Congress and the American people, testifying publicly that they're committed to countering Iran and deepening the U.S.-Israel relationship, then implementing the opposite policies in secret once confirmed. Unquote. That was from Senator Ted Cruz on Saturday, flagging some very alarming allegations there, really. We did hear um, Jacob Blue stating his alliance with Israel and, and his determination to establish, help Israel establish itself more securely within the region. Um, in, in light of these, these uh, doubts, we, can, we look forward to hearing what um, Lou answers the senator's questions. That's right. You know, we've already heard him talk about ending Hamas's attacks, returning U.S. citizens who are held hostage in uh, Gaza, held by Hamas to the U.S., um, to stop this conflict from expanding to the region. We've heard threats from 
Iran saying that this will become a three-front war if Israel goes into Gaza on land, um, stirring up controversy with Hezbollah in the north, in Lebanon, as well as um, other uh, Iranian and Palestinian uh, factions in the region over in Jordan. Um, we said, he said that Iran is a threat to Israel's existence, so acknowledging some of the things that, um, who was it who was saying? Senator T Ted Cruz. Yeah, ten mm -hmm. Senator Ted Cruz was saying. Um, however, he, he did, uh, he was a key, he played a key role in the Obama administration's relationship with Iran, um, which um, some of the senators here have said that um, made Iran um, more powerful in the long run, right. leading to this moment that we're in right now. That was a key point that um, Senator Risch made. He, he wanted to really point out the flaws that he saw in the, uh, in the Obama administration there regarding Iran. Um, so upcoming is more, more questions from senators. Uh, we will have to really let you know about that um, as it turns out. It's, this is an important designation at this intense and trying time for Israel, uh, but we'll have to let you know how this all pans out with whether they recommend or the nomination. That's right. Stay tuned for more. Thank you so much. President Biden's message to Israel is, you are not alone. He also said Hamas cannot represent Palestinians. Biden is also backing Israel's assessment that a terrorist group is behind the hospital explosion in Gaza. We take a look at the highlights of this, his remarks in Tel Aviv. The House is set to vote for Speaker a second time after Ohio Representative Jim Jordan failed to garner enough Republican support during the first round. The European Union says we have to figure out what happened at the hospital in Gaza so that those responsible can be held accountable. Who will take Palestinian refugees? Egypt now saying it's not open to the idea, even fearing protests from its own people. Putin and Xi Jinping pledging closer ties at a Beijing summit. The Russian president says world conflicts only strengthen relations with China. We have more on their one-on-one -on -one talks. Welcome back. President Biden is in Israel. I come to Israel with a single message. You're not alone. You are not alone. As long as the United States stands and we will stand forever, we'll not let you ever be alone. Most importantly, the, uh, I know the recent terrorist assault on the people of this nation has left a deep, deep wound. More than 1,300 innocent Israelis killed, including at least 31 American citizens, by the terrorist group Hamas. Hundreds, hundreds of young people at a music festival. The festival was for peace, for peace, gunned down as they ran for their lives. Scores of innocents, from infants to elderly grandparents, Israelis and Americans, taken hostage. Children slaughtered, babies slaughtered, entire families massacred. Rape, beheadings, bodies burned alive. Hamas committed atrocities that recall the worst ravages of ISIS, 
unleashing pure, unadulterated evil upon the world. The vast majority of Palestinians are not Hamas. Hamas does not represent the Palestinian people. Hamas uses innocents, innocent families in Gaza as human shields, putting their command centers, their weapons, their communications tunnels in residential areas. Palestinian people are suffering greatly as well. We mourn the loss of innocent Palestinian lives like the entire world. Today, I asked the Israeli cabinet, who I met with for some time this morning, to agree to the delivery of life-saving humanitarian assistance to civilians in Gaza, based on the understanding that there will be inspections and that the aid should go to civilians, not to Hamas. Israel agreed the humanitarian assistance can begin to move from Egypt to Gaza. Let me be clear, if Hamas diverts or steals the assistance, they will have demonstrated once again that they have no concern for the welfare of the Palestinian people. President Biden is also backing Israel as a hospital blast in Gaza complicates diplomatic work in the Middle East. Joining us live is NTD's White House correspondent, Iris Tao. Good afternoon, Iris. What are the president's latest comments on the hospital explosion? Are we potentially getting closer to the truth of what happened? Good afternoon to both of you. So in the press conference that happened just this morning, President Biden backed Israel's assessment of what happened during the hospital explosion in Gaza, which allegedly killed hundreds of people. And President Biden said that indeed, according to his assessment as well, the explosion was not caused by Israeli airstrikes. Here's what he said. I was outraged and saddened by the enormous loss of life yesterday in the hospital in Gaza. Based on the information we've seen to date, it appears the result of an errant rocket fired by a terrorist group in Gaza. So the Israeli military today released what it called evidence pointing to a failed rocket launch by an Islamic Jihad group, which is aligned with Hamas. Specifically, it released an audio clip that it says was an, a recording of Hamas operatives talking about this failed rocket launch and also unveiled some satellite images and graphics, including ones that showed tracking lines of the rockets. And now a spokeswoman for the U.S. National Security Council has also come out to say that U.S. intelligence agencies have also analyzed the video showing the launch and determined that it did not come from Israel. Definitely a lot to watch for there regarding this hospital explosion, Iris. So how has this incident affected Biden's trip to the Middle East and what else is he talking about? So this whole incident have apparently influenced Biden's trip there because, for example, it happened right before he was about to depart for Israel. And then we heard yesterday in the afternoon when the White House sent us a statement saying that uh, Jordan's summit in Jordan, apparently with President Biden, the Palestinian leader and the Egyptian leader has been canceled or postponed. And we also heard earlier that the Palestinian leader pulled out of the meeting, citing what happened in Gaza. So a lot of changes to Biden's schedule. He's no longer traveling to Jordan after his stop in Israel, instead is coming back today to the White House. Meanwhile, during his speech, he also announced an agreement in which Israel, as you just heard, will allow humanitarian aid to flow from Egypt into Gaza 
Gaza, which has been under a blockade. He also announced that the U.S. will provide $100 million in humanitarian assistance to both Gaza and the West Bank. And he said he's also asking the U.S. Congress for what he called an unprecedented support package for Israel's defense. And back to you. All right. Thank you very much, Iris. The White House now commenting on a video released by Hamas this week. The video appears to show a female hostage saying she's being taken care of. However, the National Security Council spokesperson, John Kirby, told NBC that the video doesn't support Hamas at all. He said that terrorists instructed the woman on what to say, effectively coercing her to appear on camera. It's a propaganda video, much more than it is uh, proof of life or certainly proof of concept for ha Hamas. It's despicable, deplorable uh, that they would take these hostages and then advertise how well they're treating them when they are the ones who hurt them in the first place. He added that the video should be considered an attempt by Hamas to portray itself in a positive life light rather than proof that the hostage is alive. The Israeli military has also condemned the video as an attempt by Hamas to bolster its reputation. That's after much of the world was shocked by the terror group's slaughter of civilians. An Israeli forensic team this week analyzed victims in an Israeli community targeted by the terrorists. The team says around 80 percent of the victims had signs of torture. That includes children. Authorizing U.S. military force in Israel, House representatives now drafted legislation that would do just that. They say the authorization draft only exists in case the need arises and that it might never actually be marked up. Uh, Secretary Austin now has 2,000 Marines and expeditionary force off the coast of, uh, you know, uh, Gaza uh, and Israel, I'd say northern Israel near Hezbollah, as a deterrent to ensure that Hezbollah does not invade Israel. We don't want that to happen. I hope I never have to mark up, as we say, uh, my uh, authorization of use of military force, but I have to be prepared for that, uh, that situation. The congressman would not say if the White House asked him for the authorization, but he stressed that the draft was only being prepared in the event it becomes necessary. He mentioned that the draft does not involve the use of force against Iran. It focuses on Iran proxies like Hamas, Hezbollah and other militant groups. However, Iran would be put on the list if the Islamic nation were to get directly involved. Meanwhile, senators from both parties keep working together on an aid package. Their package, however, would include more than just funding for Israel. We'd like to get the supplemental package moved as quickly as possible. Uh, because the needs are great in both Israel and Ukraine. And um, we'll have to see how well, the administration is supposed to send us one the end of this week. I'm working with Leader McConnell to get it done ASAP. This comes as the White House is expected to consider a supplemental request of about $100 billion. That would include defense aid for Israel, Ukraine, Taiwan, and security for the southern border. Senate leaders say they expected President Biden to send them a request by the end of this week. Two of the sources say the request was for a full year of funding, which would explain the large sum. Meanwhile, the Treasury Department today announced new sanctions against Hamas leaders this week. The sanctions target nine individuals and one entity linked to Hamas. Hamas needs its worldwide financial networks to fund its operations in the Gaza Strip. 
The sanctions disrupt that flow of money. A group of senators, uh, senators has introduced legislation that would prevent the transfer of $6 billion in assets to Iran. Senator Tim Scott introduced the bill known as the Revoke Iranian Funding Act. The ranking member of the Senate Committee on Banking, Housing and Urban Affairs was joined by more than 20 Republicans and independent lawmakers. The legislation would rescind the Treasury and state general licenses that enabled the release of the billion dollars to Iran. Billions of dollars. The bill would prevent the regime from accessing and using the fund. The Biden administration recently released the funds in exchange for American prisoners held in the country. The lawmakers have raised concerns that Iran helped fund and coordinate the Hamas terror attacks in Israel. Biden was supposed to meet with Jordan and other Arab nations, but Jordan canceled the summit last minute yesterday. What's the significance? To discuss, I spoke with Bart Marcois, a former Deputy Assistant Secretary for International Affairs. Bart, thanks so much for coming on our show. To start with, President Abbas canceling the planned meeting with President Biden. It's raising concerns about potential escalation of conflict in the region. How do you see the potential con consequences of that canceled meeting? It's troubling to see a major player in the regional diplomacy cancel on the U.S. president. Um, president Biden has to achieve something from this trip. If he doesn't achieve something, if he goes and nothing changes, then it risks widening the conflict rather than narrowing it and controlling it. And Bart, what do you make of the hasty nature of this trip? It frightens me. Uh, generally, a presidential trip is planned weeks in advance. The the deliverables, we used to call it, we, we, we would, when we were preparing for a presidential trip, either as a career foreign service officer or as a senior official in, uh, you know, a political appointee in the administration, we would be obsessed with deliverables. What would each side agree to before the president came there? And, and it was all carefully choreographed so that the president came in and, and all he had to do was say, yes, I agree with this. Yes, I'm going to shake that guy's hand and we're going to go out and smile for the cameras. This is, uh, it's, it's half-baked. How do you think Iran's agenda for the region potentially could have influenced the timing of this attack by Hamas? Well, you put your finger on it right there, Stephanie. The Israel and the Sunni Arab states were, were reconciling. They were nearing uh, a rapprochement through the Abraham Accords, and Iran looked at this and said, we cannot have a peace process that succeeds. But there's a greater and much more serious concern about Iranian intentions. I do not have access to intelligence information anymore. My security clearance expired years ago. But I believe very strongly from open source material that Iran is very close to nuclear breakout. They're very close to actually having a nuclear weapon that is functional and that they can deliver by missile attack. And there's only one power in the world that can stop them or that would stop them, it's, and that's Israel. And I think they had to launch a 100% distraction 
against Israel to make sure that Israeli jets were busy defending their own borders and could not go and penetrate deep into Iran and destroy their nuclear facilities. I suspect that this war will continue and expand and contract until Iran is ready to announce that it has a functional nuclear weapon. I think that's the real aim of the war. I think that's Iran's real aim. Definitely got to keep our eyes trained on this at this crucial moment. Thank you so much, Bart Marcois, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of International Affairs, among many other titles. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Stephanie. It's always a pleasure. Coming up, another cryptocurrency head on trial. The founder and former CEO of bankrupt cryptocurrency lender Celsius Network is charged with seven crimes. Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders is forcing a China-owned agriculture company out of Arkansas. We dig into that story after the break. Thank you for staying with us. Israel's geopolitical conundrum. According to David Wormser, Middle East affairs analyst at the Center for Security Policy, the Hamas terror attack has changed Israel's strategic position. I spoke with him to find out how. David Wormser, thank you for joining us. First, talk to us about Israel's strategic position before the Hamas terror attack on October 7th. They were making peace with uh, a few Arab nations before that point. Yeah, there were, there were very serious talks underway with Saudi Arabia to join the Abraham Accords. The Abraham Accords are a peace treaty between Israel, the UAE, uh, Bahrain, and another two, two or three other Arab nations. And the Saudi, Saudi Arabia was very interested in joining that. And there were very serious talks underway, uh, largely because the interests of Saudi Arabia and Israel coincided. So it seemed like a natural. But then came the war last week. I still think those are likely in the future, in the near future. But this war was definitely an attempt to disrupt that. And, and why, why would they want to disrupt that? Why would Hamas want to disrupt that? Talk to us about the motives here. Well, I think one has to understand Hamas is the local extension of Iran's strategic reach. And Iran understands Saudi Arabian, Israeli rapprochement and peace even, uh, really isolates Iran. Uh, there was talk of having a corridor of gas and oil flowing from the UAE through Saudi Arabia to Israel and from there to ports in Europe and so forth. Plus, it really strategically encircles Iran, and it creates a sort of strategic momentum on behalf of Israel and Saudi Arabia and the whole Western-aligned coalition in the region. And Iran is threatened by that. And therefore, this was their way of trying to reverse the strategic momentum and to, to destroy that. But at the same time, one has to take Iran's ideology seriously. They want to destroy Israel. So they don't need any, although I think there was strategic considerations, they don't need a strategic reason. They need opportunity to strike Israel, and they saw one. And so what has the Hamas attack done to Israel's strategic posi position in the Middle East now? Um, where do Israelis find themselves? Well, that's a great question. You know, the Israelis really pride themselves on being independent, self-reliant, strong, and a, and a growing nation, and really uh, a, the future of the Middle East. Uh, 
And what's happened here is that the Israelis all of a sudden suffered a terrible blow. They look weak. They look like they were caught off guard, complacent, maybe even incompetent. And the criticisms of Hezbollah, which is an ally of Iran and Iran, that Israel's just a spider web, you pull a thread, the whole thing collapses, it's just a colonial artificial entity that's not viable, et cetera, et cetera. Well, obviously, in Western eyes, that's not the case. Certainly in the Middle East, there is a real question mark here. And Israel looks very weak, and the strategic really looks strategically under attack and on the defensive and retreating, because this was a terrible blow. Um, so that's where Israel is right now that's different from a week ago. Given this, what does Israel's next move have to be? Israel's next move is they have to reverse that. They have to reverse the strategic momentum and show that they are a strong country, that they can stand on their own two legs, they don't need anybody to fight for them, and deliver really a stunning, if not dramatic, victory that takes the war and, and, and turns it back onto Iran and makes the Iranian regime look weak, threatened, and teetering. So this is really, at its base now, a very dangerous strategic game that Iran has opened up with Israel that Israel has to answer with a counter-strategic, really a, a truly geostrategic answer and victory on a level of such, such magnitude that it throws Iran back onto the defensive and shows the Iranian people who are already in revolt against their regime that the Iranian regime is under attack and may not last. All right. David Wormser, thank you so much. Growing unrest in the Middle East may prove to be a headwind for global financial markets. An escalation of the Israel-Gaza war could send shocks to the world growth and become an obstacle to disinflation. Here with us live is NTD business host Don Ma. Don, how could the Israel-Hamas war impact U.S. markets? Well, the first thing, of course, a lot of people are concerned about is oil prices, right? Uh, I mean, they have been on the rise. Uh, markets factored in risk premiums after a blast at a Gaza City hospital on Tuesday. Investors are uneasy about the risk of a widening conflict as well in the Middle East. So what's in the spotlight uh, right now is the potential for Iran to become more involved. Uh, and then the U.S. responding with sanctions on Iranian oil. Some analysts are saying that crackdown on Iranian oil exports could immediately remove somewhere from one to two million barrels per day off the market almost instantly. And if that happens, you know, th that could send prices even higher in the oil market. So other than the oil market, what impact would it have on the stock market? Uh, you, you know, whether this conflict remains limited to a confrontation or it develops into a broader conflict, it, it's going to have significant implications. Uh, but market reaction has been modest so far. Um, however, there are still some degree of impact. For example, uh, Israeli stocks listed in New York and uh, Tel Aviv have fallen due to the war. And Israel may actually have an outsized influence on the U.S. stock market because more than 100 Israeli companies are listed on U.S. exchanges with a combination uh, with a combined market cap of more than $150 billion. And as well, Israel has the fourth most companies listed on the Nasdaq. And funds in the U.S. hold more than $43 billion 
in Israeli stocks and bonds. Uh, that's according to a Bloomberg tracker. So here's a couple examples for you, Steph, of the impact the war has had. Um, shares of autonomous vehicle chip maker Mobileye Global. This is the largest company in Israel uh, based on market cap. It has fallen by about 9% over the past five trading days. And another uh, tower semiconductor, this is a chip maker based in Israel, fell by about 4.3% uh, over the same period. So, you know, it has some degree of impact. Will the war have an impact on inflation, Don? From what we've seen uh, last year, for example, the war uh, in Ukraine, uh, oil prices briefly hit $139 after Russia's invasion, and that added to inflation, right? Um, but, you know, some analysts are saying that if Iran gets involved, it could mean higher commodity prices, uh, higher external shocks, and this could be a trigger for a more inflationary outlook. But, you know, if the war remains confined between Israel and Palestinians, uh, it's likely that the market will forget about this uh, after a short period of time. So, you know, we just have to wait and see. All right. Great reporting as always, Don. Thank you. Back to Congress. The House is voting for Speaker again today after yesterday's vote failed. Ohio Representative Jim Jordan hasn't garnered enough Republican support so far. Jordan wasn't able to reach the 217 vote thresholds during the first round of voting yesterday afternoon. But the chair of the House Judiciary Committee says he's continuing to work with Republicans to secure the votes. We just keep talking. I'm meeting with some members, uh, one member now and a few members later. Do you think that you're going to pick up support on the second ballot this I morning? So. I hope so. I think so. We've already had a, uh, Mr. Bill Arrakis is coming back. We've already had one member who told us uh, that he's uh, going from, I forget who we voted for the first round, he's going to vote for us on the second round. This isn't about being anti-Jim. I, I think he's done a great job as chairman. He's yeah. a great voice, one of many great voices. Uh, but yeah, it will be a no vote, a second round. And we need a speaker that can represent the entire conference, I, I believe. Representative Don Bacon praised Jordan for his work on the House Judiciary Committee, but said he isn't the right man for the job. If Jordan can't succeed, there is buzz about giving the temporary speaker more power. That's so the House can take action on issues like Israel. But others are reluctant. Jordan needs 17 more votes to succeed, and 20 Republicans voted against him yesterday. Jordan is the second nominee after Representative Steve Scalise also failed to win the speakership last week. Former Arizona Attorney General candidate Abe Hamade has announced he's running for Congress. Hamade revealed he would be running for Arizona's 8th Congressional District on X, formerly known as Twitter. The district includes suburbs north and west of Phoenix. His announcement came shortly after Representative Debbie Lesko said she would not be seeking re-election. Hamade is the first candidate to announce he is running for Lesko's position. Senate candidate Carrie Lake quickly endorsed his candidacy on Tuesday. Lake officially announced she would be running for, her, for the seat currently held by Senator Kirsten Sinema last week. She has also received an endorsement from former President Donald Trump. The founder and CEO, founder and former CEO of bankrupt cryptocurrency lender Celsius Network arrived at Manhattan Federal Court on Tuesday. Alex Mashinsky appeared for a hearing on his plan to repay its customers by year end. 
Prosecutors alleged that he misled customers and artificially inflated the value of his company's proprietary crypto token. Mashinsky pleaded not guilty to seven criminal counts in July. The charges included securities fraud, commodities fraud, and wire fraud. He's one of several crypto moguls to be indicted in the past few years. The trial is another blow for an embattled industry. Crypto exchange giant FTX went bankrupt last year. That company's founder, Sam Bankman-Fried, is on trial for fraud. He's pleaded not guilty. Top officials in college sports testified in front of senators yesterday. The Senate Judiciary Committee held a hearing on the future of student-athletes profiting from name, image, and likeness deals. The NCAA is at the center of an antitrust lawsuit. It could force the organization to change the existing model of how athletes are paid when they are used in things like commercials or video games. A previous case in 2021 went all the way to, to the Supreme Court. The justices found in a unanimous vote that athletes had to be paid a fair market rate. Most witnesses at yesterday's hearing suggested federal regulation for use of name, image, and likeness for college athletes. There is currently a mishmash of laws among states surrounding this. And some innovation with tax filing. The IRS is moving ahead with a plan to build its own free tax filing program. Direct File is a pilot version that will be available to some taxpayers in 13 states next year. Eventually, the IRS tax filing system could serve as an alternative to private tax preparation companies like H&R Block and Intuit's TurboTax. But for now, the online pilot program will be very limited in scope. The IRS anticipates that at least several hundred thousand taxpayers will decide to participate in the program. It will help the IRS determine whether it's feasible to offer a government-run tax filing system to more taxpayers in the future. Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders announced that Arkansas will force a Chinese company to give up farmland there. Huckabee Sanders says Arkansas is the first state in the nation to take this sort of action. The governor said that seeds are a form of technology. She raised concerns the company would use them as a possible way to target American farms. The Chinese company must also pay a $280,000 fine for filing disclosures late. Coming up, an attack on a synagogue in Berlin. Find out what Germany's chancellor says on the Molotov attacks. The Pentagon has released footage of nearly 200 aircraft intercepts by China. The number of intercepts in the last two years exceeds those of the last decade, a development that U.S. military officials find highly concerning. Welcome back. And now we head to some short, short headlines from around the world. The European Union is now commenting on an explosion that left several hundred dead in a Gazan hospital. Analysis of the footage and angles indicates the tragedy was the result of a failed rocket launch from within Gaza. Israel says the Palestinian Islamic Jihad reportedly tried launching the rocket. That's another terrorist group in the enclave. Here's the EU Commission president. There is no excuse for hitting a hospital full of civilians. All facts need to be established, and those responsible must be held accountable. 
The president of the EU parliament said we have to make sure to shed light on what happened. She added it was once again innocent civilians who were forced to pay the price. Meanwhile in Germany, a Jewish synagogue, got, a Jewish synagogue was attacked with Molotov cocktails overnight. Germany's chancellor today commenting on the attack in Berlin. It is completely clear that we do not accept this and will never accept it when Jewish institutions are attacked. Events and activities which turn violent or use anti-Semitic slogans will not be accepted. On social media, the chancellor called attacks on Jewish institutions despicable, adding that anti-Semitism has no place in Germany. Police say two hooded men threw the Molotov cocktails at the synagogue in central Berlin early Wednesday morning. However, they reportedly missed their target, which police guard around the clock. Authorities reported no injuries or damage. Over in the Middle East, disagreements on who takes Palestinian refugees. Egypt's president says Egypt doesn't want to accommodate Palestinians in its Sinai Peninsula. The president says this would turn the area into a base for attacks against Israel. Instead, recommended that Palestinian refugees relocate to an Israeli desert for now. Egypt's Sinai Peninsula borders the Gaza Strip. It's the only land crossing from Gaza that doesn't border Israel. Egypt's president says millions of Egyptians would protest if Gaza residents had to move to the Sinai Peninsula. Meanwhile in Europe, Austria's former chancellor is on trial. He's accused of making false statements in a parliamentary committee in 2020. If convicted, he faces up to three years in prison. The former chancellor has always denied the accusations. He resigned in 2021 because of the charges, as well as further allegations of embezzlement, bribery and corruption. Three dates have been set for the trial, which is attracting great media interest in Austria and abroad. The trial is expected to last until November. Turning to China and other Asian countries now. Leaders of the Five Eyes Intelligence Coalition warn of an unprecedented threat from Beijing. That was during a forum at Stanford University. Intelligence chiefs warned of Beijing's infiltration of the alliance's private sector and academic institutions, where intellectual property theft could occur. There is no greater threat to innovation than the Chinese government. In the private sector in particular, um, seemingly innocuous joint ventures, investments, other kinds of transactions which are designed to facilitate or enable the threat. So part of what makes it so challenging is all of those tools deployed in tandem uh, at a scale uh, that the likes of which we've never seen. All nations seek secrets and all nations seek strategic advantage. But the behavior we're talking about here goes well beyond traditional espionage. And the threat is that we have the Chinese government engaged in the most sustained, scaled and sophisticated theft of intellectual property and acquisition of expertise that is unprecedented in human history. The forum was held at Stanford University because it's located in the heart of Silicon Valley. Head of Britain's M15, Ken McCallum, said geopolitics impacts those working in cutting-edge technology. 
McCallum added that more than 20,000 people in the UK may have been covertly contacted online by Chinese spies. That's double the number previously reported. A one-on-one -on -one conversation between Russian President Vladimir Putin and Chinese leader Xi Jinping. Besides praising Xi's Belt and Road Initiative, Putin emphasized greater coordination with China. In the current difficult conditions, close foreign policy coordination is especially necessary, which is what we are doing. And today we'll discuss all of this, including our bilateral relations. Putin said his meeting with Xi went on for three hours. It covered topics including economy, political interaction, and joint work on international platforms. The two also discussed the situation in the Middle East and Ukraine. Putin says common threats will only strengthen cooperation between Moscow and Beijing. Meanwhile, Xi Jinping praised strengthening ties between China and Russia, saying bilateral trade has reached an all-time high. She said the two nations are moving toward a goal of $200 billion in trade. As for political partnership, the Chinese leader reminded Putin that they have met 42 times over the past decade. In a rare shot, as President Putin arrived in Beijing, he was filmed with military officers carrying a nuclear briefcase. The briefcase is with Putin at all times, but is rarely filmed. U.S. presidents also have such a device. It holds secure phone capabilities that allow leaders to authorize a nuclear strike. Worth noting, the Russian parliament just agreed to revoke approval of a global nuclear test ban treaty. Moscow describes the move as putting it on par with Washington. The Pentagon has released footage of some of the nearly 200 intercepts of U.S. warplanes by Chinese aircraft that have occurred in the last two years. The number is significantly higher than the total amount over the previous decade. U.S. military officials have called the trend concerning. The examples released by the department today may each look different, whether in terms of the distance between the lawfully operating U.S. asset and the PLA asset engaged in coercive and risky behavior, or in terms of how exactly the PLA asset behaves in any given interaction. But all of these examples we've released today underscore the coercive intent of the PLA by engaging in these behaviors, particularly in international airspace. The intercepts happened over the East and South China Seas, which are considered international airspace. They include reckless maneuvers, discharging of chaff, shooting off flares or approaching too closely or rapidly to U.S. aircraft. The officials said the Chinese flights were risky and aggressive, but stopped short of calling most of them unsafe. Officials said it was essential to release the footage and call out China's behavior, as it shows a wider trend of Chinese aggression that could accidentally lead to conflict. Despite calls to end the maneuvers, Beijing cut off communications with the U.S. military after former Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan last year. Any requests for engagement have since gone unanswered. And South Korea, Japan and the U.S. are set to hold their first joint aerial exercise near the Korean Peninsula. This move is part of their efforts to enhance cooperation against threats from North Korea and China. The exercise will likely happen on Sunday and involve the B-2 bomber and fighter jets from all three countries. In August, the country's leaders agreed to expand joint military exercises. 
This upcoming exercise is the latest in a series of steps taken. The countries have also established a three-way communication hotline to bolster security cooperation. Coming up, it may be a little easier to board your next United flight. The airline is reinstating window seat priority boarding in a few days. And a world record for the hottest chili pepper. A South Carolina pepper developer almost doubles his own previous record. More shortly, here on NTD News Today. staying with us. Neuroscience has shown us how beneficial it is to do a mindful awareness practice. But you don't just have to sit still. Here are other ways. Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. Research shows that mindfulness-based practices can help to alleviate chronic pain and anxiety. But most traditional mindful exercises require participants to sit still for extended periods. This can be tricky for people suffering from physical pain or severe anxiety. Let's learn more about mindfulness techniques and see if there are other options rather than just sitting still. Multiple studies have highlighted the positive effects of mindfulness on physical and emotional health. You can improve cognitive resilience, anxiety, depression, stress, enhanced overall cognition, better emotional regulation and elevated mood. So, do you have to sit in a cross-legged position for hours to access the calming effects of mindful awareness? No. One easily accessible mindful movement combination is walking. The purpose of walking isn't to clear all thoughts, it's to simply focus on the walk itself. The goal is to be present and remain connected to your body. This is an exercise designed to engage in the moment. It can put space between you and an immediate emotional reaction. Here is a simple three-step routine. Number one, set a dedicated amount of time to be fully present. Start with five minutes. Find a place where you can remain safe and undistracted. Work with where you are. Number two, begin walking slowly and maintain a steady pace. Breathe normally. Number three, observe your footsteps. Notice a rhythm and bring all of your attention to the physical sensations as your feet contact the ground. This is your anchor. As you walk, consistently return your focus to your footsteps. For walking mindful awareness, footsteps are used in place of a breath anchor. When you inevitably get distracted by thoughts, just go back to the footsteps. You can do this exercise daily or just use it as a tool when pain and anxiety come up. Have you ever boarded a flight and sat in the middle seat before the window passenger arrives? If so, you probably know the logjam that results when you step into the aisle so that person can sit down. Well, United Airlines knows that conundrum all too well, so it's introducing a new boarding process to help. In economy, people with window seats will board first, followed by those in the middle. Passengers with aisle seats will board last. The airline says the system is similar to one it had until 2017, but with more nuances. The new process still allows pre-boarding, award tier and higher seat class customers to go first. Basic economy passengers board last. United says it will start the new process October 26th. A new chili pepper is taking the phrase, that's hot, to a whole new level. And it has a suitably intimidating name. It's called Pepper X. Wow. It just set a new Guinness World Record as the hottest chili pepper in the world. 
It took Ed Curie 10 years to grow the pepper in his South Carolina greenhouses. On average, it's nearly 2.7 million Scoville heat units. That's from lab tests at Winthrop University in Rock Hill. The previously hottest chili pepper, the, the Carolina Reaper, registered an average of 1.6 million Scoville heat units. The Carolina Reaper was also grown by Curie. I'm a creator. I have art. Uh, so when I get peppers and breed them together, it creates something new. And that's like a baby to me. And I get to see that baby grow and flourish. The world record will be presented to Curie at the Tennessee Hot Sauce Expo in Nashville next month. Incredible. In, in case you were wondering, the average jalapeno averages between three and 8,000 Scoville heat units. That's less than one five-hundredth as spicy as Pepper X. Whoa. <laughs> that is spicy. <laughs> Have you ever had something that spicy? Never. Never. Don't. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's, I had something that was considered extremely spicy once, like out of the normal range you get at the shopping market, okay. at, the, at the grocery store, and um, like I, I, I was freaking out. <laughs> it I was bet. so bad. Oh my gosh, I freak out with even a small amount, so I don't think I'll go anywhere near that. <laughs> but actually, if you, have, if you do end up in that situation, you can get some milk, which can allegedly um, heal that kind of pain from spicy food. Right, right. There is a way out, right? Okay. Well, thanks so much for staying with us today. That's all for today's news. Thank you for tuning in. Feel free to reach out to us with news tips or feedback at news.today at ntd.com. We'll be back with more stories tomorrow.